Father, we thank you for this time to look at your words. Please, would you help us now, open our eyes, help us to see clearly what you are saying to us here. We need the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts to see and to hear. So please be at work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I need to tell you about a deadly serious illness. It's spread to every corner of the globe and the number of cases is growing daily. Many people do not even realise they have this illness and yet it has a devastating effect on their lives and also the lives of people around them. Even when presented with evidence of the existence of this illness, many will continue to deny it even exists. It is, of course, the deadly sickness of spiritual blindness. Blindness to the existence of of God, and not just his existence, but who he is, blindness to his son, Jesus, and his true identity, and the implications of that for us in our own lives and for the world. Not seeing clearly who Jesus is and what that means is spiritual blindness. Many people will not acknowledge it. Now, of course, we've been obsessed for, you know, 18 months now with another illness that is affecting absolutely everything. But, but Christians now, however serious that particular illness is, and it's serious and we, it's right to take it seriously and take precautions and everything else, the disease of spiritual blindness is even more serious. It has consequences not just for this life but for eternity. And that is the issue that we see here in this reading that we've heard read from Matthew. We heard it too in the first reading from Isaiah, just beginning to, 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 to flag up this concept of the blindness of God's people. They're blind and deaf, Isaiah said. Now we see it here in uh, Matthew. And as we begin this series, we're going to be looking at uh, chapters 14 to 17, essentially, this term. We've been dipping in and out of Matthew's gospel over the last few years, if you've been with us at all. Uh, don't worry if you haven't. Uh, we started right back at the beginning, but the, 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 you may remember, or you may know that Matthew divides up his gospel into chunks of uh, teaching and chunks of action. So there's five blocks of straight teaching from Jesus, and then in between you get action and things that happen that, that, that help us to see overall who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And we've just had in, in Matthew in chapter 13, we've had a chunk of teaching and then you get verse 53, the beginning of the reading, when Jesus had finished these parables. And if you, if you, it might be good to take some time to read through Matthew's gospel again. And if you do that, you'll notice these little things that Matthew drops in. And he has these phrases that he uses that help us to see how he's dividing up the book. It's just going to handle them. So it's not just 28 chapters of, oh my goodness, how does it all fit together? He has these little markers that help us to see. And this is one of them, verse 53. This, and it, you'll see it in other places in the book. When Jesus had finished saying this, he moved on and did something else. And so this tells us this is the beginning of a new uh, section. And it's 14 to 17, then chapter 18, you get some more teaching. At the centre of this section, you get this great, well, or relatively well-known uh, bit where, where, where Peter comes to, to Jesus, and Jesus asks him, who do people say the Son of Man is? If you, turn to, if you just flick over the page, you've got the Bible in front of you, chapter 16, in the middle of there, chapter from, from verse 13, uh, verse 14, 
uh, the, the disciples reply to Jesus, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Suddenly they've got it. So all the way up till now, we've been sort of trying to establish who is Jesus and particularly chapters 8 to 10 kind of laid out some basic miracles that he did that help us to understand um, who, his identity. But now this section is doing something slightly different, and we can see what that is from the verses that follow. Verse 17 in chapter 16, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So what these uh, verses, chapters 14 to 17, and then the teaching that follows in chapter 18, what they're about is Jesus building his church. And so you get uh, through, and we'll see this, we'll see that you get, um, it kind of alternates between Jesus doing something positive and people flocking to him, and he's building his church of people who will believe him and trust him, and we'll see that in the, in the section that follows. But also in between that, you get... And you see the gates of Hades, as it were, pushing back against Jesus. You see conflict. You see people fighting him and saying, no, I'm not going to follow you. And I don't believe who you say you are. So you see the, the pressure that comes back at Jesus and obviously ends, uh, comes in the end to, to, to the cross as people uh, resist him to that extent. That's what's going on. And we begin here in this uh, section in, in uh, the end of chapter 13, beginning of chapter 14, with some of that opposition, that conflict. And we called this series, this term, the real game of thrones. And the reason for that is because obviously here is a king who deserves to be on the throne, but here also are others who want to be on their own throne and who are fighting back and saying, we don't want you as our king. We want to be king. We want to rule. We want to be in charge. And, you know, in the 21st century, we're pretty suspicious of authority, you know, as a culture, aren't we? You know, we don't particularly like people telling us what to do. We're suspicious of people with power. And the words, then, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the king, well, do they sound like good news, do you think, in, in our world today? Do they sound like good news to us? Do they sound like good news to our friends, we might wonder. It sounds a bit more like possibly a threat, doesn't it? To say, here is somebody who is the king, who has all power and authority. Oh my goodness, you know, surely we shouldn't be giving all the power and authority to one person. Is that wise? You know, the message we want to hear is different, isn't it? The message we want to hear, we think, is, you know, oh, just express yourself however you like. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You set your own rules, make your own kind of music, sing your own special song, even if nobody else sings along. That's kind of what we want to hear. But the, the, the message we think we want to hear is not, you are not the boss and there is someone else who is, and his name is Jesus. But it turns out that this is not something that people just resist in the 21st century in London. It was like that even when Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago. And perhaps most shocking of all, it was like this among the people you'd least expect to be the ones resisting him. That is what we see here. 
So we see in, in the reading that we heard, this Game of Thrones is on because the people resisting Jesus and showing the symptoms of that spiritual blindness that we talked about are first of all who? First of all, his own family in the, in the final verses of chapter 13. And then, chapter 14, you get the man who was nominated by the Romans to be king over his people, the Jews. You've got Herod. Now, he's called the Tetrarch. That means he's not quite, has not quite as much power as, the, as Herod back in chapter 2 did. And actually, they're two different people. And there's, a, there's actually a number of Herods. You can, I think maybe about five that are referenced in the Bible at different times. But we think probably this is the son of the guy back in chapter 2 that we hear about at Christmas who, who, who tried to kill the babies. He was King Herod. This is Herod the Tetrarch. But still, in place, because the Romans have put him there, he is there to be ruling over his people. And, uh, you know, you might think this is the person who might be best placed uh, to recognize the long-awaited Jewish Messiah when he finally turns up. but he doesn't. And so it's, it's surprising, isn't it? It's surprising. And we're going to see what that shows us. Because the issue in both cases, with his family, with Herod the Tetrarch, is spiritual blindness. That's what's going on here. And these verses then unpack the reason for this. So let's see the two things. We see the causes of spiritual blindness here. And we see, first of all, the family who are blinded by Pride. First of all, the family blinded by pride from verses 53 to 58 of chapter 13. Have you experienced that situation where maybe someone you used to know at school or university, something like that, has actually gone on to be quite famous or successful in some way? And you look back and you think, really? You know, we, we played in the orchestra together. We were in the same football team. He, he was in the bottom set for maths. I was friends with his sister. And, and, and look at them now. Look at her now. Look at the lifestyle. He's enjoying this, this person. Is that kind of feeling familiar? Maybe. It can be crippling, actually, for some people that when they look back. I remember, you know, I'm I, I, sort of a trombone player, musician. I used to play in youth orchestra and things. I remember very clearly the conductor of my youth orchestra and he was obsessed with the fact that uh, he had the same distinguished conducting teacher as Sir Simon Rattle of the Berlin Philharmonic. And there was this kind of bitterness because he couldn't quite stop talking about it or let it go and just acknowledge that this is where he got to and this was where his fellow pupil had got to. And we can probably all recognise that, I guess, to, to, to a greater or lesser extent, can't we? You know, even if it's just, you know, when the person who joined the company on the same day as you gets promoted first or whatever it might be. Now, what is going on when that happens? I think what's going on is it's pride, isn't it, actually? If we really dig down into it, it is nothing less than pride. A sort of self-righteous feeling of, you know, well, that, that should have been me. That could have been me. Or at least it shouldn't be them anyway, whatever we think. You know, I'm happy to pull them down if I can't pull myself up. Because to admit that they are great is to admit that I am not. Do you recognise that? 
And there's something of that dynamic here with Jesus' brothers and sisters. This can't be right, they say. Where did this, this guy get his wisdom from and this miraculous power? He's, he's Joseph's son, isn't he? He's a carpenter. You know, we, we had him fix the extension on our house. You know, this is ridiculous. And his mum is, what's her name again? Oh, it's Mary. Yeah, we know Mary. And his brothers, James and, and Simon and Judas and his, and his sisters as well. They haven't even left the town. They're still here with us. They probably remarried, or probably married local men here, presumably. You know, they're still here and they're like us. Where then did this man get all these things? Do you see what's going on here? There's a bit of a sense that if there is a God, we already know what, how he ought to operate. And how he ought to do things. And it's frankly scandalous that he might take some regular guy from a regular northern town and have him turn out to be the son of God. But underneath that is a kind of pride. You know, how dare this guy rise this high? Because to admit, not just that he's become a very successful person, but even more than that, to admit that he is actually God on earth, the son of God, as man is to admit that he is great and I am not, that he's my Lord and I am his servant. And so what we see here is what we see in so many places. We see the spiritual blindness that goes with saying, I do not want this Jesus to be my Lord. So Matthew is showing us as Jesus then points out only in his hometown and in his own house as a prophet without honour. In other words, you see the extraordinary shock of what's going on here. This is my own people, and they're rejecting me too. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They will not put their faith in him. They're saying, no, from the outset, this is not somebody we're prepared to say is our Lord. So Matthew's showing us, in order to see clearly who Jesus is, we need to be prepared to humble ourselves. And realise from the outset that we don't have all the answers. Otherwise, we're going to remain in our state of spiritual blindness. Just like back in chapter 13, the parable of the sower reminded us, if we will not receive Jesus and his message with joy, we're like the path that rejects the seed. So, what's going on then at school or in the office when Christianity is kind of ignored and sidelined and pushed to the margins. And, you know, a a request for a Christian Bible study group is quietly, uh, or, you know, or or rather a request for a Christian Bible study group just to be advertised in school or in in the office. is kind of sidelined and said, no, no, we we, we can't really have that kind of thing going on here. Plenty of other things the office will celebrate, but not that. No, thank you. You know, why are you still banging on about Jesus? 2,000 years later. What a ridiculous thing to do. What is going on when you, when you meet that kind of attitude, as I'm sure we all will experience in different ways at different times if we're following Jesus? Well, it's spiritual blindness, isn't it? It's the same thing that we see going on here. Maybe we can think of a particular non-Christian that we know. And uh, there have been conversations over the years that, that we've tried to point them to Jesus, and they love a debate, but their mind never seems to change. Well, the issue may not actually be the quality of our arguments, and it's easy to feel like it is, and it's easy to feel, oh, I just haven't quite put it in the way that's going to persuade them. No, the issue may actually just be a kind of pride 
that says, because Jesus doesn't fit into the way I think God ought to be, I can't believe in him and I won't believe in him. It's spiritual blindness. And Matthew is showing us here that you can know a lot about Jesus. You might even spend a lot of time among his people. But you can completely miss who he is because you've already decided he, he can't be the Lord of the universe. He can't be God's Messiah. He can't be the one before whom every knee will bow. Not this guy. Not that guy that you read about in the, in the Bible study and we heard about in primary school. No. And at that point for that person... What may make more of a difference than arguments is praying for their spiritual blindness. Praying and praying and not giving up. Because the Holy Spirit needs to be the one who opens the eyes of those who do not and will not see who Jesus is. But for, for many of us, we may feel, you know, okay, that, that's, that's very helpful, but, you know, for me personally, that's, that's not where I'm at, because, you know, I know who Jesus is, I can say the creed and mean it, but let's be careful, because Matthew is warning us, familiarity breeds contempt. And one of the things we keep seeing through the gospel is that it's the religious, it's the insider who continually misses who Jesus is. And the common factor, once again, is pride, being proud. If our hearts are full of ourselves and our ambitions and our plans and our hopes and our dreams, is there any space to listen to Jesus through his word, to let him change us? When was the last time God disagreed with us, as it were, when we found something in the Bible and thought, actually, that is something that needs to change in my life? In the end, there's only one throne, and it's already occupied. Don't be blinded by pride, Matthew's warning us. But there's, there's more as we come then, secondly, to the king who wants to be loved. The king who wants to be loved. Here is a king who suffers with a particular kind of pride. Now, there's a lot of detail in these, in these verses, isn't there, about, about John the Baptist. But the link is verses 1 and 2. See, like the family, here's another person, Matthew is saying, here's another person who doesn't see who Jesus is. And then he explains why. It says the reason is he has a guilty conscience regarding what he did to John the Baptist. And essentially, because of what we're about to see, the way that John the Baptist met his death, this has left Herod feeling like, mm, I think probably that wasn't a great thing to have done, and we'll see very clearly why. And now, basically, he sees ghosts everywhere. That's what he's saying. Just his conscience is, pl is plaguing him. Now, it's a pretty weird story, this, isn't it? What happens with John the Baptist, if you heard in the reading? Well, actually, it's entirely believable when you know the kind of thing people used to do in the ancient world. Only a couple of generations earlier, the great Roman orator Cicero uh, was finally murdered by his political enemies. And uh, do you know what they did? They, they, took it, they cut off his head, and they cut off his hand, and they put it on a kind of board, and they brought it to the emperor's wife, Fulvia, uh, who had been previously married to his great political enemy, Clodia. And she took his head and she cut off his tongue on this board in front of her, in the court, and uh, she impaled the tongue on the board with a, with a knife and did the same to his hand. What was she doing? She was, in other words, taking the tongue that, that, that spoke and the hand that wrote, you know, the two things that Cicero was famous for. 
And she said, you know, that's the end of him. Great act of doing it. And you see, it's the same kind of thing that's going on here with John the Baptist, with this extraordinary thing of his head being brought into the dinner party on a platter. It's the kind of thing that went on. But the, the backstory to all this, we're told, is that uh, Herod had put John in prison because John wouldn't shut up about the fact that Herod had married his brother's wife, Herod's brother's wife. Now, this is something that the law of Moses uh, explicitly forbids. It would have involved divorce, so they, you know, he was sort of, um, uh, the, 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 the Herod had, you know, managed to take his brother's wife for his own, even though his, his wife was married to his brother and all that kind of thing. In other words, the law of Moses says this is not something you're supposed to do, but the uh, king of the Jews, this Herod, is saying, no, I'm going to live by my own standards. I'm going to do, my, do it my own way. 85 years ago, the uh, United Kingdom had a king who came to realise that being king was incompatible with marrying Mrs. Simpson, a, a twice-divorced American socialite. And Edward VIII abdicated, as you probably know. And he announced, do you remember what he said in his speech before he got on the plane? He said, I found that I cannot continue as king without the help and support of the woman that I love. And it's not a completely unsimilar situation here with Herod. But John the Baptist isn't just a moralizer picking on people who don't measure up. That's not really the point here. He, he's preaching to the one who claims to represent God's people and saying, your life does not match what you preach. Do you see? So this isn't just sort of about um, divorce in and of itself or something like that. This is about a particular man who's behaving in a particularly immoral way, a notorious way that everyone would have been sort of muttering about and known about and spreading all these rumors about. And uh, Herod is, um, it, it, and John the Baptist is saying to Herod, "Look, this is not right for someone in your position to be uh, behaving in this way." So, what does Herod do? Well, he presses on regardless. Verse five, and we start to see then what drives him. What what is motivating him as he as he does this? Do you see? He wants to be loved, and you can see that in his relationships with all these different people. He wants to be loved by his wife, who he's married against God's law. He wants also to be loved by the crowds who consider John a prophet. He fears losing their goodwill, so he, he can't just kill John the Baptist straight away. But then he wants to be loved by his daughter, who dances on his birthday and pleases him, and he finds himself promising on oath to give her whatever she asks. And quick as a flash, we discover perhaps it was his wife putting the pressure on him to kill John, and she seizes her moment. Give me, here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. And what happens, verse 9, the king was distressed because he wants to be loved. Do you see? And he's kind of, he's realising, if, if I make being, wanting to be loved, the kind of thing that I live for, it, it doesn't work, because I can't be loved by everybody all the time. I'm, I'm not that in this situation I'm going to be not loved by somebody. I'm going to be hated. Am, am I going to be hated by my wife? Am I going to embarrass myself in front of my dinner guests who kind of, you know, everyone's laughing along at this great uh, display that's going on and it's all wonderful? 
Or am I going to be not loved by the crowds who love this prophet, slightly strange, talking John the Baptist? And so he's torn, but he goes with his oath, his stupid oath. He goes with his dinner guests whose love he craves. He has John beheaded in the prison and his head is brought to his daughter who hands it to her mother. Now, it's, it's kind of tragic, isn't it? But is, at least, not in the details of the head and all that, but at least in the, in the pattern of it, is it not completely recognisable in our own lives and in our own world? Because this is what people are like. This is what we are like, isn't it, if we're honest, naturally speaking. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. And, and in many cases, we will do anything to, to make that happen. You know, I, I, I want my friends to love me. I'll do anything. I'll join in with anything that they say. You know, maybe this, if you're at school, you're thinking, oh, this is a particular group. I want to be in with them. And I know if I'm going to be in with them, then there's a way that they do things. I'm going to have to join in with that, even if it upsets other people. But I want to be loved by them, and we will do anything. I want my boss to love me. I'll do whatever she says, even if it destroys my home life and my family in the process. I want my parents to love me. We know how crippling it can be when, for whatever reason, a parent's love is not expressed or heard or felt and how it can cause someone, sometimes it can cause someone to spend their their whole life desperately seeking that approval that they were never given. Well, the tragedy and the irony that King Herod shows us so clearly is that he thinks he's the king who gets to rule everybody else, tell them what to do. But the reality is what? He's being ruled by these desires. This desire to be loved is completely controlling him and ruling him. He will do anything, even when it ends in the death of an innocent, righteous man. And how is he left? He's left empty, He's left haunted, and he's left still looking for love. Do you see? Now, the thing, look for love, is it? Of course not. It's not wrong to long for love. It's entirely human. It's what we were created for. But it is wrong to seek it in the wrong place and from the wrong people. Actually, there is somebody who loves Herod, rightly, in these verses. Can you see who that is? Who loves Herod rightly in these verses? Well, it's, it's John the Baptist, isn't it? Because what is he doing? He's lovingly calling him back to God. Saying, look, Herod, you're going the wrong way. Look at what God's law says about the way you ought to be living. It's not too late to change. Come back. That is what Herod is saying. Isn't it, isn't it actually loving to tell the truth in those circumstances? So often we think, oh no, I can't, I can't ever say anything challenging to someone. No, sometimes saying the challenging thing is exactly the loving thing to say. Whether it's challenging them with, the, with the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus or something else. So John the Baptist is rightly loving Herod, but Herod would ra- rather settle for the cheap love and the cheap grace of his mates and the crowds, and his lover. See, the root of the issue for Herod, once again, is pride. He can't admit that he's wrong. 
So at various points in the story, he could have just said, look, guys, sorry, sorry, look, this is just wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. Let's stop. I know I made that promise, but it was the wrong thing to promise. And we're not going to go any further with this. But no, he, he can't bring himself to say, no, this was the wrong thing to do because he wants people to love him. He won't bow the knee to the true king that John the Baptist is pointing him to. And, and that is tragic because it means that he is in the end completely blind to what is actually on offer to him. Because ultimately the only person in whom we will find the kind of love and acceptance that we're craving, whether it's Herod here with all that's been going on in his life or whether it's us with all the ways in which we look for that and all the ways we've been thinking about, the only person in whom we will find that kind of love is in Jesus. Because what kind of king is Jesus in contrast with this king that we see here? Is he one whose power and authority we should fear? You think about our world, you know, how, how we fear power and authority. But look, here's a different kind of king. Is he one whom we should wrestle for the throne? Is he one whose control over our life we should resist at all costs? Well, let me... Let me tell you what kind of king he is. He's the king who deserved to be loved by everyone. But he didn't just seek that at all costs like Herod. In fact, what did he do? He let people hate him. He, he let them destroy him. He let them treat him like a common criminal, not a king. He gave up the human privileges of his royal status. He let others crush him. He's the king who served. And why? So we can join his family. See, his biological family, as we saw, were bemused by him. You know, it seems his mother and brothers, at least in the end, became his followers and recognized him, <clears throat> not just as their flesh and blood, but as the son of God. But for them and for us, that can only happen when the spiritual blindness of pride is removed, when we humble ourselves and we say, you are Lord and I am not. There is nothing to be lost when we give our lives to him and we say, you're the boss now, not me. There is nothing to be lost except our sinful pride that, as we see with Herod, so easily destroys us. There is nothing to be lost when we come to this king, but there is everything to be gained. Let's pause for a moment. I'll lead us in prayer. Father, help us to see as individuals what you're saying to us through this part of your words. Help us to see clearly who Jesus is. May we humbly acknowledge that we don't have all the answers, that we need a king. We need this King Jesus. 
please would you help us to come to him if we've not done so before and say thank you to this king for dying and rising so that we might trust him and have life and love and belong to that family to your family forever we pray in jesus name amen